the patient really is the centre of this. And I think we're going to see a tsunami of consumer-led disruption where the um, the consumers are going to say, no, we're not going to do it the old way anymore. We really want to be a part of this. And I think that's a great thing. Hi there. You're very welcome to another All in Business, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. I'm coming to you once again from my home. And today we'll be looking at what small and medium businesses can do to help out during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be speaking to Dr. Johnny Walker, interventional radiologist and founder of Jinga Life. And we'll also be joined by Michael Kelly, the founder and CEO of Grow Your Own. After that, we'll be speaking to our trailblazer, Porico Grealish, founder of the Mickle Distillery in Salt Hill, County Galway, who's adapted his small family business to help out with the production of a new vital product during this crisis. Now, don't forget to hit subscribe as always to get the full show on podcast and YouTube each week so that you never miss an episode. Now, let's meet our panel. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Johnny and Michael, thank you for joining us remotely this morning and you're very welcome to the show. Since this show in particular is about how small and medium enterprises can help out during the COVID-19 pandemic, I guess I'll start by asking you both how the crisis has affected uh, your businesses, how, how it's affected you personally and in a business sense. Yeah, well, I, I guess we've got two sides to our business, I guess. We've got a, a public-facing um uh, business uh, and restaurant and and shop here in in Waterford called Grow HQ, um, and then we've got I suppose the campaigning uh, program side of our business, which is all about trying to help people to grow food. So, the two businesses have been affected completely differently. Um, we've had obviously like most restaurants and cafes, we've had to we closed uh, to the public about. Uh, three weeks ago, I guess at this stage, um, we were initially hoping to keep keep going as a um, you know with a collection service, a contactless catering type service for for customers, um, and particularly the the hospital, uh, University Hospital Waterford is right across the road for for us. So we have a lot of um, healthcare workers as customers. Um, so we kind of felt that would have been a good service to offer them, but we just we just felt then with the I suppose the new round of restrictions that came in, then we couldn't we couldn't keep that going. So it's completely closed to the public now. So all of our courses and education work, um, our cafe and our shop are closed. So that's a very, very strange situation, uh, particularly at this time of the year when it's kind of it's so so beautiful around with the garden coming into life and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and then on the you know we've had to obviously uh, put some staff on temporary temporary um layoff um others we've been able to kind of maintain uh keep on the payroll using the wage subsidy scheme the government have which has been very very useful to us and very helpful um and on the GIY side then we're we're busier than ever because there's just been this absolute surge in interest in food growing um at at this time and so we're you know our our team on the GIY side which is about 10 people are working from home and we're absolutely inundated so i suppose you're kind of trying to manage you know two very different um responses and um just you know respond to the increased demand on one side of the house with with lim- very limited resources and income under severe pressure on that side of it as well so it's a very it's a very mixed bag that we're trying mm. to react to, but you know we're very lucky, I suppose, in the sense that 
people who can work from home are able to do that and, and um, we're able to keep that service going. Actually, one of our own producers, Alice, uh, sent us in a picture yesterday of uh, her, her own um, grow it yourself efforts at home, uh, which are coming along very nicely, as you can see there. But I'd imagine, I mean, you mentioned an increase in, in demand, which is exactly what I would have expected. But how big an increase are we talking? Um, I mean, uh, to give you a sense of it, like we, yeah, so we sell those little starter kits, the grow box kits. Great to see hers doing so well. Um and yeah, I mean, we in, I suppose in last week, we probably sold more of them in one week than we, when we did in the whole spring last year, it's just been absolutely insane. And and that's reflected across, um, you know, lots of other online kind of, uh, retailers, seed retailers and so on that we've been speaking to. So it's probably, it's probably up six, 700%, I guess, wow. um, website traffic as well. Just people are, I guess, they're crying out for kind of knowledge about how to do it and I'm not really sure where to start. So I, I think that's where we see our kind of um, our efforts need to be. Um, and even with our TV series, which started back on on um, on RT about three weeks ago, the, the viewer numbers have more or less doubled in, uh, based against last year. So it's it's just insane, you know, and I think it kind of reflects um, two things. I think it's the People are obviously bored at home and wanting to, you know, keep themselves busy and keep the kids busy and do do things that'll, um, you know, keep keep them sane and healthy at this time. Um, but there's also, I think, a kind of a vulnerability there that we're worried about. You know, all of the systems in our society that we trust mm. and and take for granted most of the time, I think, um, are under are under threat and don't feel as stable as they used to. So I think people tend to we saw a bit of this back in the, you know, 2008, 2009, when things were, you know, like when, when the recession hit. Um, but this is on a different level of magnitude altogether. And I think I think partly it's just people wanting to sort of take a little, feel like they're taking a little bit of control back of, of where their food comes from. And that's, um, you know, even though we're not talking food shortages yet, thankfully, mm. um, I think people are sort of conscious of that in the back of their minds as well. Mm. And what about you, Johnny? Um, because obviously you're you're still um, you're you're as well as being the founder of Jingle Life, you're an interventional radiologist, and you're still working in that sphere. So you're right on the front lines. Um, how are you doing personally with that? And, and equally uh, importantly, what's the impact been on your business? Um, so, Vaughn, personally, um, I grew up during the AIDS epidemic in. Um, down in St. Vincent's in Sydney, you know, 100 yards from Oxford Street. So we were truly the epicentre of HIV. And any um, young male coming in between the age of 16 and 46 was HIV until proven otherwise. And of course, we could, couldn't prove that we had to treat them on spec until we could. And um, and we got through that and we didn't think we would. And so I've, I've seen a fair bit of that and also TB in rural and road areas um, around the world. But this virus is, this is an extraordinary virus. It really is. And um, I, I just don't think we've yet felt the real bite of it from a clinical point of view, we were batting on um, as normal right up until about um, the beginning of last week. And then on the, um, and I'm an interventional radiologist, as you say, so we operate um, under X-ray, ultrasound, um, CT guidance, um, using local anaesthetic and pinhole technologies to go in and target tissues in the body 
which might be infection, but they could also be cancer. So we're going in and doing biopsies. And if it does come back nasty, we'll, we'll put lines into the heart so we can do chemotherapy and various other stuff um, that um, will hopefully help the patient. So we were, we've been busy and always are. And then on the 31st of March, um, the government um, uh, asked a partner with the um, the private non-public um, hospital network, of which I think there are about 19 of us in the country. And um, all of those hospitals have um, stepped up and thrown their resources uh, in terms of people and time and facilities um, into this challenge, hopefully to take some of the pressure off the, um, the public system where the acute COVID patients will be going in. And mm -hmm. so we're working under a, um, a sort of a new world at the moment. It's not hugely different. I operated all day yesterday and, um, you know, we still still do the cases as we would um, on their merit, uh, but it's um, it's just a little bit of uncertainty. Uh, and of course, the, the big thing that's changed for us is the um, personal protective equipment that we've got to use. And uh, so the gowning and the de-gowning, um, whilst we're always using sterile technique, it's now sort of at a, um, a real crescendo. Uh, so that's slowed us down a little bit in terms of our systems, but otherwise, you know, we're batting on and, um, you know, we're, we're there and uh, we're there 24-7. So it's great just to be a part of it. And I think what would be terrific was just to see this sort of this coupling of the public and uh, and the private uh, into just one united effort and one, one massive collaboration. And I think that's the only way we're going to win. On the entrepreneurial side, on the digital side, mm -hmm. you know, for the last five, six years, um, you know, I've been evangelising the need um, for us to really empower the captain of care in every family. We call this person the Jinga after the um, the great African warrior queen, Queen Jinga. Um, and we want to empower the Jinga by giving her um, a family electronic health record all in the uh, palm of her hand so that she's got all of the information she needs for all her loved ones from womb right through to term, but still able to connect through to the GP, the community nurse, the all-important community nurse, the physio, the dentist, the pharmacist, this untapped um, resource on the high street, and then specialists like me in hospitals when and as required. And um, so we built all that, and um, there's been we've had 165,000 downloads, and that's being used regularly. And then... Um, the Jingas came to us and they've designed the whole thing and said, Johnny, can you do away with the CD-ROMs? And um, normally when you go and have an MRI or a CAT scan, you get given a CD-ROM to take off to the specialist. We've done away with all of that and done that um, completely digitally so that can all be shared in the cloud. And just last week, um, we've got the first um, strong, robust steps now with the HSE to try and remove um, CD-ROMs from our, our patient journey completely because they're a vector for infection. And um, hopefully, um, we'll now be able to get some traction within the um, the HSE and the uh, the wider healthcare environment. So, whilst it's a perfect storm sort of hitting us on one side, it's uh, it's another opportunity on the other side, and we're going to try and bring them together. Yeah, it's interesting because you're both kind of in fields um, that are contributing at the moment to. Well, contributing to getting people through uh, this pandemic, but also probably going to contribute to uh, changes societal changes we're going to see thereafter. So I suppose, Johnny, for you, it's really telemedicine having its day in the sun. And for you, Michael, you know, a 600% increase in demand for um, grow-it-yourself packs is, uh, you know, it's it's not insignificant. Um, so uh, apart from your own roles in kind of perpetuating this change, um, I'd be interested to see what you both think, what else you think will change um, for the country and for people um, irreversibly when this is all over. Where are we going? 
Well, I think, um, Michael, is that a, if, do you want me to bat off on that one? Yeah, you go, go for it. Yeah. I, one thing I hope um, doesn't stay the same as we are in this acute setting now, Vaughn, is that is the, the two metres of separation. I must say I'm, I'm a very physical person, a very personal person. I'm finding the two metres of separation, particularly even with my patients in the clinical setting. But I live at the foot of the pier here in uh, Dunleary, and that two metres, um, it just seems like a, you know, a massive distance uh, to be separated. I'm hoping that we'll be able to come back together because I think there's some um, there's just some real energy and real power about the, um, the physicality of proximity, of just being close to each other. So I hope that that comes back. Um, I think the so from a medical point of view, we will never again care for um, for patients the way we used to, and that's a great thing. I think you'll see digital come in where we've um, we've now proved it can step up at relatively short notice, and um, not only in the face of adversity, but you'll see so much more efficiency where we're able to care for patients um, in a much more safer, um, a faster, more productive, and more efficient way in the uh, the future, just by using handheld technologies and empowering you know patients in a way that they've never been empowered before, and really realizing that. The, the patient really is the centre of this. And I think we're going to see a tsunami of consumer-led disruption where the um, the consumers are going to say, no, we're not going to do it the old way anymore. We really want to be a part of this. And I think that's a great thing. What about you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I like when I think about the the, broad, the bigger picture with the food food system, I think I think um I think there's phenomenal change coming down the tracks there as well. Um I think what this what's been really interesting to 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 see, I guess, is that even even though food supplies have held up very well, um, I think we are starting to to hear some narrative around um, fresh food shortages, and and it's really exposed something we've been saying for for years, unfortunately, which is that over the last you know twenty to thirty years. The number of of veg and fruit growers commercially has just you know absolutely plummeted, and they've been driven out of the market by, you know, um, you know obviously cheaper imports coming in, but also the price promotions um, that we see unfortunately all the time in supermarkets, which have become a permanent feature of 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 life really. And I think um, the, the the kind of the worries that I have about the medium term, I think, is is that. Almost all of the veg and fruit across Europe is actually is actually picked by seasonal labour, um, an awful lot of it from Eastern Europe, and that labour supply has completely dried up. So, because because people can't, you know, either they've gone home or they can't get out of of their own countries to do it, um, and so that's that's leading to serious labour shortages. That, for example, the asparagus crop in Germany has been, you know, they're talking about leaving it in the ground. Uh, we've got problems with soft fruit, um, things like strawberries coming into harvest next month, and so on. Even here in Ireland, so it's really it's really exposed, I suppose, how how you know we we always talk about self sufficiency in GIY and getting people to grow their own food as a way to become that bit more self sufficient, but um, and live you know live healthier and more sustainably at the same time. But I think it's really highlighted this crisis how how we're so reliant on on imports of food um particularly veg veg and fruit like up to 90% of the of the, the the veg and fruit we eat in this country is imported um and so i th- i think i think that's going to shift i think more people are going to get back into horticulture in ireland um and growers are going to start growing more of their own food because i think they'll they'll have to the supermarkets will um will need it and you know i think more 
more people at an individual level will get into growing their own food as well. And I think that's, again, you know, as Johnny said, there's, there's some, there are some positive legacies coming out of the awfulness of this crisis. And it's, it's, it's not about we're, you know, taking advantage of, of anything, but I think there are potentially very positive outcomes. And if we become, you know, more local, more seasonal, more focused on, on homegrown produce, whether that's in your own gardens or in, in our own country, I think that would be a really a really positive legacy to come out of it. And tell tell us about um, the seeds the day campaign, Michael. Yeah, well, I guess I guess what again we always see this that that there's huge um, there's a huge lack of knowledge around around food growing because we've just completely disconnected from it as a society, and and so our job is always to you know give people the the skills they need to to do it successfully. So. We felt at this at this time we wanted to respond to that by by uh, giving people as much knowledge as as we could. So part of it was kind of repurposing some of our existing programs. So we do a huge campaign with with Innocent called the Big Grow in primary schools. Obviously, we had to completely recalibrate that when the schools closed. Um, and we do another big campaign with Energia, which is a kind of a community garden focused campaign, which we've had to recalibrate as well. And then we felt, you know, we wanted to make whole rafts of our materials, like our books and things available free online. And with the Seeds of the Day campaign, we've got a daily uh, video challenge going out at 11 o'clock every day where we just, you know, we set people very simple growing challenges to hopefully sort of uh, get them started and then link them back into the to the bigger resources behind that. And similar way to Johnny, I guess, where, you know, the, the potential for technology um, to assist people to grow their own food is huge. We're developing an app at the moment and obviously looking at podcasts and other technologies just to connect people with that knowledge that, that they need at this time. And Michael, um, in, you know, so many people live in apartments, particularly in the urban areas, less so in, um, in Ireland. Um, do you have solutions and, and products um, that permit growth of, the, of your food from a sustainability point of view within the apartments? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think that's the, the key message to get across to people sometimes is that, you know, you don't need a big allotment or or a big back garden to do this, that, you know, self-sufficiency is a spectrum as, as opposed to, you know, a single point destination. It's always about trying to, you, you know, any movement you can make from complete reliance on the supermarket to, to some more self-sufficiency is a positive thing. And, you know, obviously you're limited by the space that you have in terms of exactly how much you can grow. But, you know, I always I always mentioned this guy that we had out of a festival we ran a few years ago who grew, you know, 700 pounds sterling worth of, of veg on a balcony in London. And, um, you know, so it's a, so most of the things that we like to eat in terms of veg and fruit can grow quite successfully in pots and containers on a, on a balcony. You know, not as much as you would on an acre in a in a field uh, in the countryside, but um, still very worthwhile and, and can be surprisingly productive, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the courgette is a, is a great example. We grew it in the TV series last year and it was, um, you know, you can get 20 to 30 courgettes from a single plant in a in a container on a balcony. You know, so it's it's surprising how much you can produce in mm-hmm. a small space. And so if the future of food is very much in our own, ha- in our own hands, um, Michael, I'd put the same question 
to you, Johnny, what you, I mean, you've told us a little bit about um, Jinga Life and we've talked about telemedicine generally, but what would your hope be for the future of digital medicine being in our own hands after this pandemic? I, I do hope that um, ultimately we all become uh, the custodian of our own data from from the start. I hate that word data, but I think it's really, really important just to have your own uh, medical record, you know, knowing your past medical and surgical history, knowing your immunisation history, which is going to be so vital now with um, hopefully a vaccination in the not too far distant um, future. Um, and, uh, and then being able to connect with the various members of the medical ecosystem um, freely and accessibly and to be able to do that 24-7 from wherever you are any time in the world. And I think that'll see a, a real new level of empowerment for um, the patient and for their carers in a way that we've never done before. And I think we're going to look back, and, and I didn't think this was possibly going to happen in my lifetime, but I think it now will. We will look back and we'll think, how did we ever, how did we ever do it the old way? Yeah, the, with paper as well, if we're going to go paper free. And I know a lot of people, even online, mm. um, on the front lines have been saying that they quite easily just completely cut out paper. So that's probably a big change we'll see. Um, Johnny, I hate putting you on the spot, but I'm going to anyway. Um, no worries. Go. Where, where, do you think, uh, where do you think we are now? I mean, on every TV show, every radio show, it's the question people keep asking because it's the question we so desperately want an answer to. Um, you know, how... how how long more have we got to go, do you think? Oh, I think, um, I know they're talking about the, the humps, the, the hills, and Trump's got various other names for all sorts of mountains and, and whatever each night. But um, I, I've just got to feel um, that we're, we aren't, we've done well. I think we went in really early. It was quite courageous, quite brave. Uh, I think the lockdown um, was imperative and um, we're, Whilst the numbers are going up, they're coming up incrementally um, at a lower rate than they were. And certainly Ireland, if you look at all the curves where we're mapped out against the other countries, we're sitting down in that lower third. So we're doing a lot of things right. So I think in Ireland, I I'm hoping that we'll be able to manage this with our current resources and we'll get through it and we've got a real shape, form and structure to the plan. So I'm really quite confident in that regard. There are other countries that I'm worried about, I'm particularly worried about sub-Saharan Africa and um, the third world countries where this is, uh, if this does hit, it's going to hit with a, um, with a mammoth impact that we've probably not have ever seen before. And that's what frightens me. I think the, the US, look, they'll they'll pick up and recover. We're seeing Italy tail off now. We're seeing um, Spain beginning to drop away uh, in terms of um, their, their numbers. Having said that, Singapore's popped up again today. Hong Kong's popped up again today. So it could be the start of their second wave. But look, it's a very complex virus. It's, it's mutating um, rapidly and it's so much at this stage brighter than we are. And, um, but, but we will beat it. We will beat it. And I think Ireland, we're, we're going to be okay. This, this, it, it won't be as, um, as horrific as it potentially could have been if we hadn't have done uh, what we did earlier. And as Easter weekend approaches, Johnny, I think probably um, a lot of people at this point might have itchy feet. Um, would there be any message you want to give to them in terms of social distancing and the need to kind of hold fast? Yeah, I don't know if they're going to extend the, the lockdown. I'd be very surprised if they don't take us through possibly to the end of um, April. Um, uh, and, you know, there are 
brighter people than me making decisions on that, I think. Um, but in the interim, the hand-washing, I think the hand-washing now, Yvonne, will become part of our culture. Um, so often we always had the hand-washing at the start of, at the front of the hospital. So many people just walk in, walk past it and what have you. Now everyone's going in and, and seeking where is the hand-washing devices. So I think that's going to become part of our culture and that will that'll be one of the great legacies of this virus. So the hand-washing is imperative and the um, the social distancing is, is just an absolute must, an absolute must. And I know it's going to be a, you know, it's coming up to Eastern and it's probably going to be the most beautiful weather um, and it's going to be so hard, but we just got to, we've really, really got to come tight now and it could happen to anybody. And we've got to uh, understand that this is a real devil of a virus. Okay, thanks, Johnny. Good advice there. Uh, and Michael, I just wanted to ask you before we run out of time, um, because a sort of similar question um, in that it's about Easter weekend, uh, but maybe for those people I mentioned who might be getting itchy feet and might be thinking about uh, flouting rules and uh, travelling somewhere for a bit of a break, maybe they could turn that attention and that energy uh, towards their gardens instead. Um, for anyone who wants to do that in the coming days, what advice would you have for them? On how yeah, to get well, I, I, like before I get into that, I'd absolutely echo what Johnny says and, and like the bravery being shown by our healthcare staff, like it's just, it's it's breathtaking, you know, what, what people are putting themselves to. Um, so, you know, don't make it worse for them by, by getting out and about at Easter. Um, the, the, the good news is, I suppose, from a food growing perspective, it's a brilliant thing to do for your mental and physical health. Even the act of food growing, whether you get food from it or not, I suppose, is is a really positive thing you can do this weekend. And, and the, the good the good news is, I mean, it's been it's been brilliant weather for the last couple of weeks. Um, we're coming into absolute prime um, seed sowing territory. Uh, the next two months, you know, you can pretty much everything can be grown. Potatoes, peas, carrots, parsnips tomatoes, peppers, you name it, like herbs, salad leaves. Um, and there are lots of um, uh, retailers like ourselves still selling seeds online. We can get that stuff out to you. Mm. I know some of the supermarkets are also doing that. So you can get bags of compost and, and seeds in, in safely in supermarkets. So um, absolutely divert that energy into growing some of your own food. And hopefully you'll have, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. We always say this, it's it's such an optimistic thing, growing your own food. You know, really, it's a, it's a kind of almost like a ludicrously optimistic thing that this tiny little seed will, you know, eventually become a, a plant that'll that'll feed you and your family. And so, and you're always looking, you know, three, four, five, six months down the line. So it's a very, it's a very forward-looking, optimistic thing, and um, reason for hope that there's a harvest ahead of us all down the tracks at some stage. And for a novice like myself, Michael, if I wanted to get out into the garden this um, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, um, what should I be going for? What what seed would you would you recommend? Um, be it in a garden or for people in the city with a small balcony? Um, Where do you start? Do I have to pick one, or can I? It's like picking a picking a favorite child. <laughs> I'll pick two or three. We'll give you two or okay, three. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, I, like I always think, salad leaves are fantastic. Um, you know, they're quick growing. You could be you can be harvesting within three to four weeks. Um, so any you know things like rocket and and mustard and mizuna, those kind of oriental greens are fantastic. Um, herbs, you saw, you know, in the picture there, you saw like the likes of dill and coriander and basil. You know, very quick growing, very easy to grow as well. Um, and, you know, if I was to pick one thing outside, I would say, like, obviously, potatoes are a brilliant um, 
a brilliant thing to grow really straightforward and from from one potato you get a plant that produces you know 15 20 other potatoes so what's not to like you know it's a brilliant um and really straightforward thing to grow as well so um yeah i think any of those would be would be great to get started and, and obviously giy.ie for loads more information then sorry johnny yeah Mike, um, um, for the kids, I remember when I was a little fella, we grew up on a farm, but just the wonder of the of the growth of things you plant and that that, that whole joy of seeing these little things pop out of the um, the soil and then you being a part of that and then just watching them grow just like you were growing. And as yeah. a family, that was, that was just an incredible thing for us. The sadness came when we were, when we came to eat them, a bit like a... It's like our cows, God love them. But um, <laughs> we, we had our names for our particular shape, strawberries, and then when they were eventually put on the, on the day when mum served them up, we knew we were eating Cynthia or, or yeah, anything yeah. else. But it was, um, it was such a joy. And I think, you know, the joy that you're bringing to so many families will be something really, really valued by them all. So well done. Keep Thank it lit. Thank you very much. And well, it pales into insignificance by comparison to the work you're doing, Johnny. But um, thank you for that. Yeah. And now, guys, you're both doing your part. <laughs> Compliments abound, but deserved on both sides. You're both doing your part. Um, and that's why we were delighted to have you both on to hear about that uh, today. So thanks for joining us. That's where we're going to leave it. Um, keep up the good work, both of you, uh, Johnny, on the front lines and take care of yourself. Um, and Michael, uh, it looks like you're going to be championing a new wave of horticulture right around the country. So really interesting for us to keep tabs on that as well. And hopefully we'll have you both back at some point in the near future. But for now, that's where we'll leave it. Thanks so much to you both. Thanks, Yvonne. Cheers, guys. Stay safe. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Now, my next guest turned his 150-year family history of brewing alcohol into an alcohol-based hand sanitizer production facility almost overnight. Mickle Distillery is now distributing the product to charities in need like the Irish Cancer Society and the Simon Community. Founder Porico Grealish is here to tell us about the change of pace. Porik, thanks for joining us from Spittle this morning. I'm going to start by asking you to give us a little bit of background about the company for people who might not know. Yeah, uh, very good morning to yourself, um, Yvonne. Uh, so, uh, Mikkel Distillery, uh, we're based in uh, Salt Hill, uh, just in the outskirts of Galway City. And um, I suppose what a lot of people, you know, always question is, where does the name come from? And it's actually named in honour of my great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, we've actually been distilling poutine for six generations and over 170 years. So, I thought it was appropriate that we have named the brand after the original and uh that's where we got the name for the distillery. Uh, I started the distillery back in 2016, and uh, it was Galway's first only, sorry, it was Galway's only operating distillery. It still is. And uh, so we've branched into making gin as well. And uh, we were going to release or start making our whiskey, but we've delayed that now until uh, the COVID virus uh, thing is over. And uh, I suppose because of the huge shortage out there at the moment of um, hand sanitizer, we decided to turn our hands to uh, fill, the, fill the shortage that's there. And what was your light bulb moment uh, when the pandemic hit? Were you actively looking for ways to adapt anyway, or were you just hit with inspiration? Uh, I guess you could call it inspiration. One thing I suppose that happened was the demand you know, for our products uh, declined uh, fairly dramatically because we're uh, selling most of our products through the uh, 
the uh, sort of bars and restaurants and um, obviously they shut down. The other thing is we do tours here at the distillery, or we did, and uh, that obviously came to a standstill. So we were like, okay, we have a couple of options here. We can kind of keep it going, like, you know, one day a week or something like that, uh, dispatching to the wholesalers that we deal with. And uh, we decided, you know what, actually, there's a huge shortage of hand sanitizer. We had uh, a number of phone calls and the weeks in the run up to this. And I thought, look, why don't we just uh, do this? There's obviously a great need. I, th I think particularly um, it was uh, maybe some of the more uh, critical sort of organizations um, or yeah, uh, companies locally that were kind of like, look, we actually can't get our hands on hand sanitizers or any chance you can help us out. So we were like, look, um, leave with me. And over the course of a couple of days, uh, we decided, you know what, uh, this is something that could be you know, really good for the community and uh, also to keep us busy while this mm. thing is uh, ongoing. And that must have been something of a learning curve. I mean, I'm not sure of the the correlation between um, distilling and making alcohol-based hand sanitizer, but presumably uh, you, I would think you had to go off and learn how one makes hand sanitizer to begin with, did you? Yeah, uh, there was a bit of a learning curve. I, you know, to be honest, the biggest uh, learning curve for me was actually, um, you know, dealing with new um, regulations. So we're very strictly regulated uh, in terms of making alcohol and then throw into the mix a whole set of new regulations. So we had to get uh, permission from the likes of the Department of Agriculture, the Revenue Commissioners, the HSE, and they have various um, stuff that they need, uh, you know, complied with you know so that was a bit of a steep learning curve but anyway got myself up to speed on all of that uh with some intense uh study and all the rest of it and googling, uh, googling absolutely uh phoning people contacting people just uh but i have to say uh the regulatory bodies were actually very helpful uh on this occasion there was uh there was no not not much bureaucracy or red tape they uh fairly kind of opened the doors you know and uh they were actually willing to help, you know, if you had a query, there was no delays. Believe me, I've, expect, I've experienced uh, delays before trying to get the distillery up and running, you know, months of delays and stuff, you know. It's funny how things can be fast-tracked during a crisis and hopefully <laughs> this uh, efficiency will stay with us afterwards. Fingers um, crossed. Yeah. And Porig, I know you're you're a small team up there uh, of three, so... You must be you must be run ragged at the moment trying to get this all done by yourself. Was it a case of trying to rope in friends or neighbours or siblings or partners or everybody you could get your hands on? Uh, so at the moment, uh, we, we just literally started blending um, our first batch of hand sanitizer there uh, on the weekend. And it's being packaged uh, yesterday and again today. Uh, so I probably will need more hands on deck. And uh, for that, actually, in fairness, uh, I've had a number of friends who've offered you know, to help out um, you know, in the short term, you know, because they're not exactly, uh, you know, busy now, I suppose. So yeah, yeah we'll be able to get a few people in, obviously, uh, keep them distant and everything like that and, uh, help them get them helping out on the packaging side of things. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a team of three, uh, myself, my brother, my business partner, Ross. Uh, so yeah, you could say we're run ragged, but we're, we're kind of used to that being such a small team. And uh, most most importantly, you got approval from uh, the top dog in the family. 
Absolutely, my grandfather. <laughs> so uh, uh, he was uh, actually very encouraging, actually, in terms of, uh, you know, doing this. Uh, he actually, you know, thought it could be something we'd continue into the future. Uh, so we'll see about that. Uh, my my goal with this is just to keep us going uh, while, while this uh, crisis is ongoing. And uh, we hope to resume normality then when normality resumes, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he thought we might even continue it after the whole thing. So, Pork, the hand sanitizer will be on shelves very soon. Do you have a bottle handy? We can see what it looks like. Yeah, I actually do, yeah. Uh, funnily enough, I'll just uh, bring it up here to show you. Uh, so, there you go. It's a 125 ml bottle. Uh, and we're also supplying five litre bottles then to the, uh, to the trade. And any particular reason you went with that, um, that type of packaging and colouring? Uh, honestly, in terms of the, the branding, um, you know, uh, we, we got our uh, brand designer, Ashley Bingham. Uh, she's based up in Northern Ireland. Uh, she did the um, she did the design work for us. But in terms of the bottle size and stuff, uh, the market is uh, incredibly tight. So it was kind of really uh, an appropriate size, appropriate container and pump uh, that would suit, the, the, you know, the, the liquid is what we could find, you know. So we were lucky to, to get bottles, basically. All right, fair enough. Practical choices rather than design-based ones. <laughs> well, believe me, you should see some of the hand sanitizers out in the market, the bottles that they're coming in at the moment. Uh, it's kind of weird and wonderful shapes, but I guess people don't care as long as the stuff in the bottle is good, you know. Uh, and are you a Gaelic or Pork? Yeah, it's, it's Gaelic or me. I'm a native yeah. speaker. Uh, so from, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I had just been um, re- reading another article um, that you were talking about the importance of the word uh, mehel in Connemara and what it means to communities like yours. Tell us a little bit about that community spirit. Uh, so uh, just to explain for people what the word mehel is, it's a uh, collaboration or people helping each other out. So uh, I guess in the in the traditional days, people used to sort of help each other, you know, whether it was the kind of saving hay or kind of laborious tasks like that. Everybody would kind of give, give each other a dig out. Uh, with the, uh, I suppose, the unwritten rule was that you would return the favour. And, uh, you know, I, I think that was kind of gone, if you like, uh, in, 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 you know, recent times. Um, and I think, you know, this whole crisis has actually brought this, uh, the old uh, values out, if you like. Uh, so I very much found that people have become very, very helpful, but very willing to help out and collaborate and everything like that. Uh, with no expectation actually of anything uh, in return. So it was, it was wonderful to see the change of spirit. And if anything, you know, there's a lot of positives uh, after coming out of the, the whole uh, pandemic. And that's uh, people, you know, realizing maybe what's important. And tell me about the history of Putin in Connemara, because I actually didn't realize that, um, you know, it's so associated with the region. And I think you're saying 160, 170 years. But you're the first person to take the family business legal, I suppose. I am the first person to uh, do it legitimately. Uh, it wasn't possible, actually, to get a license until 1997 to actually make poutine. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I am the, the first in the family. Now, Connemara does have a huge tradition with poutine making. Um, in fact, you know, I think the west of Ireland would be very strong for poutine making. And I suppose if you're to draw sort of a, a horizontal, you know, a diagonal line across Ireland from the, the southwest up until the, up to the northeast, the west and north, northern part of the country would be the strongest in terms of putting making. 
Um, anyway, I suppose uh, um, it, it was illegal, and, and I suppose one of the reasons why it was illegal, or the only reason it was illegal, is because of tax, uh, despite what people think. So it was made illegal by British Parliament in the year 1760. Right. Okay, so the, a long, a long history. Well, I, another uh, quote I read from you in an article somewhere was: uh, "Connemara has a long history of paying very little attention to British, British imposed rules." <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Yeah. Left, right, and centre. Um, well, just to take you back to rules for a minute, you know, we were talking about red tape there um, a few minutes ago. Um, and just just for people who maybe for people who might be watching or listening to this and thinking that their business could pivot in these difficult times, um, where does one start with that? How, when you when you had this particular idea, uh, you know who, who uh, I'm showing my ignorance here of of uh, this particular industry, but who does who do you call and say I want to make this massive pivot? How do I go about it? Uh, so there was. There's nobody like we called apart from the regulatory bodies. It was uh, more a decision that, uh, you know, we, we had to make as owners. Um, I was particularly pushing for it because uh, I thought it would like be really kind of uh, good from a, you know, community uh, perspective. And, um, you know, we, we kind of hope that people will remember the, the good deed as well. You know, when uh, when things go, uh, you know, when things revert to what you're going to call relative normality. Um, so I think, you know, people just need to decide you know, I, I operate a lot on gut and the gut kind of said to me, look, this is something you should be doing. So that, that was my decision. Then you sort of look at, well, what are the the risks here? What are the opportunities? What are the, you know, the benefits that the, 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 uh, the I suppose, the negatives? And overall, for me, it, it all weighed up really positive. I, you know, I couldn't really see it being too negative because uh, already, I suppose, 90 percent of our revenues had been wiped out. So we said, OK. Uh, let's let's just uh, do something to keep us busy, keep the doors open. Uh, so I suppose with that in mind, um, it's not really like a profit-making exercise for us. Um, you know what we're doing is uh, selling as close to cost as possible to um, those who can afford it, and those who can't afford it, uh, we're doing our best, I suppose, to give them free stock. Mm. And you mentioned your gut instinct there and, and, and going by that a lot. Was it your gut that um, led you to give up your career in teaching to, to move into business? Absolutely. Uh, that's not to say that uh, I didn't do my research beforehand. Uh, but uh, I think but ultimately was the kind of driving force. You can find any amount of data and studies, uh, you know, to sort of back up what you're doing. But uh, what I've always found with uh, startups or with uh, successful companies, it's not so much Okay, great ideas, wonderful. There's, there's any amount of great ideas out there, but what I've seen more often than not, and you'll hear, I think, a lot of successful entrepreneurs speak about this, it's more about the team, it's more about the um, execution of the idea rather than the actual idea. I've seen a lot of like average or good ideas being executed brilliantly, and then I've seen a lot of brilliant ideas executed poorly, you know. So, and sometimes, you know, um, could be the, the right idea, wrong time. Um, you know, uh, so timing is really important for certain ideas as well. And you guys aren't, you're not actually up and running that long. You're quite young as a company, 2016. So what inspired the timing or the choice of 2016? Did you just have itchy feet to get going or was there something particularly about the market in 2016 that prompted you to do it then? I think the the timing was probably pretty good. Uh, you know, we weren't in recession, but you know, we were coming out of it. Uh, for me, it was more kind of personal timing. Uh, I felt the timing was right. 
one thing that I was looking for. So I come from an education background. I was a teacher for uh, five years and I loved that, of course, but I decided, you know what, uh, I think I prefer being uh, self-employed, being my own boss and uh, building a brand. Uh, so the route to market piece for me in terms of how to get the product to market was something I was like completely uh, new to. So uh, we managed to partner up with a company called Richmond Marketing to do our distribution of our putty. Uh, so when that door opened or that opportunity presented itself, that for me was the kind of catalyst that made the final decision. Okay, now's the time. So uh, once that opportunity presented, I was like, okay, time to uh, time to put all the eggs into one basket, if you like. And what did you teach, Pork? It didn't happen to be anything like business or economics, did it? No, actually, uh, Irish and geography were my two subjects. <laughs> so, Very little correlation there. <laughs> Porik, I'm interested to see what you think about um, post-pandemic, the impact on bars and restaurants. Do you think it will ever be business as usual as it was, or are we looking at just a slightly slower pace of life for a long, a long time? Really hard uh, to call how exactly it's going to uh, pan out. Uh, I think we're going to probably get a bit of a, how would I put it, uh, a bit of a lift, you know, when all of this, uh, you know, you know, when we uh, come out of the whole uh, pandemic, I think there's going to be a bit of a boost there. Um, economically, though, I think there, there's probably going to be a bit of a bit of a delay in actual overall impact. So we'll, we'll probably get a spike once this is all over. Um, however, I think people are going to have to be kind of prudent afterwards. And, uh, you know, because, people, you know, some people have lost their jobs, etc. Um, so there's probably going to be delay in terms of, you know, resuming where we left off we're definitely going to be in a bit of a in a dip and we're going to have to lift ourselves out of the dip uh but uh, that said i don't think it's going to be you know hopefully it won't be uh, you know 2008 kind of stuff 2009 stuff you know hopefully it'll be uh not as bad as that i don't you know again we're not as reliant on you know construction and stuff like that so i think we're probably in a better position now that said it's going to cost a lot of money to pay all those wages and uh, dig ourselves out of the hole. But uh, we've done it before and uh, we'll, we'll certainly do it again. But yeah, I think there's going to be a bit of a delay. And um, you mentioned there earlier that uh, the hand sanitizer has just been packaged up and it's ready to go now for the first time. What's the next step in rolling that out? Uh, so we've already agreed with uh, some local community groups, I suppose, that we're going to supply them. So we're going to supply them first. We've had endless amounts of phone calls, emails, uh, communication from uh, different companies and people looking for it. Uh, so I'm just going to go to people who contacted us first on, on the list and just uh, let them know, look, there's a little bit of availability or, you know, there isn't and we might have some in the next uh, few weeks or whatever. And just uh, communicating with people, look, this is what we have. Uh, is this any good to you? And then uh, work from there. So basically it's kind of first come, first served. Uh, obviously prioritizing the most uh, critical of the, you know, the organizations and the, the local community uh, groups. Well, fair play to you, Park. It's, it's quite a pivot and um, I'm sure, never mind business-wise, I'm sure reputationally it's going to do a lot for your brand. Um, I look forward to seeing both your products, um, the alcohol and the alcohol-based sanitizers on shelves um, long into the future. And I think that's where we leave it because we've run out of time. But thanks so much for joining us from Spittle and we'll talk to you really soon. Thanks a million, Yvonne. Talk to you soon. Bye, Park. Take care. Thank you. 
Well, that's it from us for this week. Thanks so much to my guests for being with us, Johnny Walker, Michael Kelly and Porrick O'Grealish. We will, of course, see you next week. In the meantime, don't forget to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.